Cincinnati jersey all on the block. We get it in. I'm in my Cincinnati Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Basketball Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined as always by Hummer. Hummer, what's up, buddy? I don't care what anybody says. Today is still a great day to be a Cincinnati Bearcat basketball fan. I'm glad you said it, buddy, because you, you're starting to see people online having having mild panic attacks. I even saw people go as far to say, not a great day to be a Bearcats fan with the tough loss to the Connecticut Huskies, which we'll soon get into, but also the rampant speculation about what is to come of the Bearcats head football coach, Luke Fickle. And if you stick around long enough, you're probably going to hear Hummer and I give some takes on football for a change. I'm not promising they'll be pretty. They might be. That's up for you to. That's for you to decide. Yeah, they could be ugly. I don't know. You know, I mean, we're we're basketball guys, but uh, I think we have opinions on on what's happening with the fickle situation and and the state of the UC football program at large. But before we do that, Hummer, we had a big game at UConn today. Uh, that being Sunday. And uh, the Bearcats dropped the tough one today. In overtime, the Bearcats were defeated for the first time in nine tries by the Connecticut Huskies, 72-71. A wild, a weird, a frustrating game on several fronts. What's the first thing you want to get into about this game? Well, it ended almost the same way as the last time they defeated us, which is just basically to say undeserved on their part. Yeah, I mean, deserved is a tough word, right? You know, you you, you get what you get. Uh, we play these games, the Bearcats play these games, the Huskies play these games, and I think it's pretty clear which team is better this year. In the 2019-2020 season, it's pretty clear the Bearcats are a superior team to the Connecticut Huskies. But there are several things that happened in this game, things that the Bearcats didn't do, things that the Huskies did that allowed a weird, wacky result to happen, and now Bearcat fans find themselves uh, a little bit panicked about what the rest of the season may bring. We're going to oh. temper your panic. I don't necessarily have a reason to to jump off the ledge at this point, given that the fact that we're... We're wrapping up, at once we play Memphis, a six-game stretch where since he's slanging, several other outlets all basically said we need to win five or six games. We still have an opportunity to do that. That said, we let one slip through our fingers today. The biggest thing that jumped out to me, Hummer, we still cannot grab a defensive rebound for, to save our life. It's maddening. 18 offensive rebounds today for the Connecticut Huskies. Yeah, I mean, it's been a big a big problem throughout the entire season, and, and it's kind of crazy to think that it is a problem when you have, you know, a giant in Chris Vogt who is, you know, clogging the down low, and he's only coming away with two defensive rebounds. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm reading this correctly, the second leading defensive rebounder today was our, in fact, our guard, Jaron Cumberland, with nine Uh and then Trey Scott is really the only presence that we have that is consistently crashing the defensive boards. 
And and once again, he had a stellar game. I think we'll get into his performance. But I mean, I think you're 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 hitting that one right. Another thing that is just, and I don't know how many times we can beat this drum or beat this dead horse, whatever you want to say. Turnovers, fourteen turnovers again. Now I know we caused turnovers, but we're we're still turning the ball over at a very high clip. And it was also frustrating to see that it's it's coming. Most of the turnovers, a bulk of them, are coming from our guard play. And I'm not letting you off rebounding. Some of them not even forced. Yeah, I'm, forced. I'm not letting you off rebounding though. We're not. That's this is a bigger problem. We're letting teams like Wichita, Connecticut, Houston, we're consistently getting bullied for long periods of the game. Period. And Trey Scott, bless his heart has been an amazing rebounder this season. He's rebounding at a career-high clip, over 9, nearly 10 per game. His his rebound rate is quite high. I'm pulling it up here. His defensive rebounding rate is 23.7%. It's right up there. It's good enough for 84th in the country. He's one of the best defensive re- rebounders in the entire country. But standing next to him in the front court is Chris Vogt, standing 7-1, 265, Chris Vogt's got a rebound rate, a defensive rebound rate of 13%. It's just not good enough. Over his last six games, which is since the Memphis game, he's averaging 4.6 rebounds per game. You can't be that big. You can't be playing the type of minutes he's playing and not be ha- and not have a bigger impact on the glass when it's clearly a weakness of this team. We need him to step up and start grabbing more boards. Yeah, there seems to be at times, like I know we're talking, a lot of people will focus on Chris Vogt and his offensive efficiency or his effective field goal rate being as high as it is. But the fact of the matter is he's getting bullied down low He on the offensive side, on the rebounding side, and on the defensive side of the ball for that matter too. He's just getting consistently bullied. And, you know, watching Josh Carlton just, just frankly destroy him today, in my opinion, in terms of, of keeping him in check making his life hard today. I mean, and Carlton is not like, you know, he was necessarily jumping off the pages in terms of his stats, but he, I think he made life very difficult for Chris Vogt. And I think people are figuring out how to make his life very difficult. And you're, you hit it on the head today. He's seven, seven foot one, two sixty five. There's no reason why he should be getting bullied like that. And he should be coming down with, he should almost be in the same league of, of rebounding as Trey Scott. Yeah, he I, should be getting that point. I, I I went back and checked his Northern Kentucky stats. Um, look, his rebound rate in very in a much smaller sample size was was a lot better. It was in the twenties. Uh, so it, it clearly some of this is impacted by the fact that Trey Scott gobbles up so many rebounds. There are going to be less opportunities for Chris Vote. But given the fact that we we're having games where we're giving up double digit offensive rebounds. Opportunity is not the problem. There's plenty of opportunity to snag defensive rebounds in this case. Josh Carlton, I will say, Hummer, he's one of the best offensive rebounders in the country. He's ranked 33rd in the country from an offensive rebounding standpoint. But you know that John Brandon and the coaching staff brought this up to the team heading into the game. Keeping them off the offensive glass would be one of the most important things for our team to do in order to have success. My problem is I look at, I look at his last six games. I mentioned the average. UConn, Chris Vogt, four rebounds. Wichita, five rebounds. Houston, two rebounds. SMU, eight rebounds. Temple, five rebounds. ECU, four rebounds. 
The Bearcats need Chris Vogt to stop rebounding like a guard and start rebounding like a center, point blank. I mean, there's not much, there's not much I can argue with you on that front. I mean, it's it's 100% true. And, and that's the other thing, too, that you're saying, like Chris, Josh Carlton being one of the top offensive rebounders in the country – Frankly, he just did. He did. He's doing, for the most part, what we need Chris Vogt to do: get in position, get yourself in a position to get those rebounds. Well, I think Chris Vogt does a fine job offensively. Like offensive rebounding wise, he ranks in the top 130 in the country. So offensively, he is really good at getting tips, at getting follow ups. He rebounds well offensively. I'm talking defensive glass. We're just getting bullied and battered consistently, game in, game out. We saved ourselves against Wichita. Jaron Cumberland pulled out a masterful second-half performance. Now, that's not going to happen every game, clearly. It's going to happen more often than not, but it didn't happen today. And uh, you remember the first half of the Houston game. We fell down into a huge deficit, and that was largely driven by Houston destroying us on the offensive boards. Then we follow that up. We play, uh, we play Wichita. Wichita goes long stretches where they're doing the same exact thing. Offensive rebounding also leads to open three-point shots. They're just, I can't preach it enough. For the Bearcats to have long-term success this season, they have to clean this up. You would have expected it to happen by now. It's just not. And and Chris Vogt, he is the one guy, unfortunately, that you can point to and say, there's opportunity for you to grab more boards than you are right now. So I'll, I'll point this out to you because you're talking about past games. Let's look at the Houston game. Players who had equal to or greater than rebounds than Chris Vote. The late Jay Sarola, he had one. Mamadou Diara had one. These are defensive rebounds. Cumberland had three. Micah Adams-Woods had one. Keith Williams had three, and Trey Scott had ten. Every single player except for three who saw minutes out-rebounded Chris Vote, who is seven foot one. Right. That... That's let's, unacceptable. Hummer, I don't want to make this a Chris Vote pile on podcast because let's be honest, he's been absolutely incredible for the Bearcats this season. Easily the biggest surprise of the season. We've got egg on our face from doubting him at the start. Uh, you know, an efficient player, a great scorer for the Bearcats, finishes with both hands. But defensive re- rebounding is a big problem for this team. He's the biggest man on the team. And with that comes the responsibility of snagging defensive boards. But it will be a team effort. Defensive rebounding always is. Keith Williams, Jaron Cumberland, all hands on deck moving forward to try and correct this problem. With great height comes great responsibility. Grab the defensive boards. (laughs) Defensive rebounding is a major issue for the Bearcats. Has to be cleaned up. It has to be the point of emphasis for our coaching staff. But like you said, it's not the only problem the Bearcats have. We have had the turnover problem creep up again and again. It has been getting better in conference play of late. Unfortunately, Jaron Cumberland had one of his sloppiest games in conference play uh, with six turnovers against Connecticut. Yeah, Jaron's performance tonight was was weird to say to put it in in the in the words. It was a weird performance because you look at on one side of the ball. With the assist, he was doing a fantastic job, especially early in the game, of I think, of creating opportunities for people. But he was having a hard time getting separation, and UConn was doing a phenomenal job of keeping him from driving the paint. They were doing a phenomenal job of making him drive to the left or right side of the hoop. 
and that's not really some that's not where I think he creates his best opportunities if he's not being able to crash into the actual paint. Um, you know, he went one for 11. That one shot that he made was a huge three-pointer. We needed it when it came. But after that, he really wasn't scoring unless he was getting the line. I think he also was having trouble going to getting to the line. And some of the plays that he was driving to or trying to finish, I feel like he was trying for the foul more than he was trying to make the basket. Yeah, Jaron Cumberland consistently seeks out contact. And the Bearcats didn't get to the line one time in the first half. Be that what it may, he had a rough game. Um, I didn't see that he was able to generate the type of separation that he has grown accustomed to during conference play. He's been getting to the rim, getting to the rim at will for the most part in American athletic conference play. Um, in today's game, UConn did a great job staying in front of him, keeping, keeping him away from the rim. And then once you get there, we knew this from the first matchup, UConn's got plenty of length down low to help, help thwart your shots at the rim. And, and Jaron Cumberland was clearly impacted by that. You know, I don't, after that first half, I thought the announcers were being a little overcritical in terms of what his first half performance was. He was doing everything in his power to set up the offense and help us get buckets. You know, I think you said he had eight assists in the first half. He finished with 10. Jaron Cumberland finishing with 10 assists, typically we're going to be ranting and raving about how amazing his performance was. But in terms of scoring, he just couldn't get anything going. And that played out throughout the entire game, right? We see ourselves go down to the to the wire. Uh, Jaron Cumberland's the one who takes the lead on, on our closing game possessions and uh, unfortunately wasn't able to get a bucket like he did against Wichita State uh, and the Bearcats. Ultimately came up short. A very controversial non-call, by the way, at the end of overtime. Uh, and in my opinion, what, once... I think you're... I think, I think. I think you're jumping the gun a little bit here. You're missing a really big portion, I think a really big turn in the game, which came at the end of the first half on a 16-2 to run by UConn that just saw our offense just hit a wall. I don't know how else to describe it. Is It just like hit a wall to the point where we weren't even really getting shots up. We weren't we weren't being able to move the ball effectively. And, you know, I, I know we'll, we'll definitely, because we have very different opinions on how this game ended. Yeah, let's wait on that. You're right. I'm done. getting ahead of ourselves there. Let's... We could talk more holistically about what happened in the game itself. The first half, the closing of the first half was a disaster because the oh, Bearcats, they took a 28-18 lead with about four or five minutes to go in the first half. And you think, wow, this team's just going to cruise to a to a really impressive road win again. Obviously, it wasn't that easy. Yeah, it wasn't that easy. And, and you kind of saw a lot of defensive lapses where, yeah, UConn, don't get me wrong, they were making some contested threes. They were making some incredible shots from beyond the arc, but too many times where they're just Adams wide open in the quarter, Vital wide open in the corner. Too many times did we see that. And you know what? They, to UConn's credit, they hit those shots when they were open for the most. Well, I don't want to say for the yeah for the most part. Would they shoot sixty percent from three? I don't think it was quite sixty percent. I think it was in the forty. Uh, 40s. UConn shot forty-two point three percent from three-point line in this game. Yeah, not quite sixty. A little. <laughs> yeah. Quite, a little uh, less, a but, little lower, but, but nonetheless, still a good number. But a really high percentage for a team that doesn't consistently shoot very well from three. I'm not necessarily surprised by the number, though, when you looked at the quality of shots they were getting. Some of that was driven by turnovers, which allowed for easy breakouts for UConn, where they had numbers, and it allowed for an easy driving kick to an open three-point shooter. But not just on turnovers. I felt like we had some missed shots where we were 
we weren't stopping UConn in transition. We were making it way too easy for them to get out and run. And those players, those guards they have, Vital, uh, Bookwright, they're much better out in the open. And they punished us again and again today with wide-open three-point shots that you just can't let any team in college have, uh, even bad three-point shooting teams like Connecticut. Yeah, and I also think, too, towards the end of that second half, and look, I, I'm, I can't say enough how great of a game Trey Scott had. As Trey Scott's biggest fan, he's <laughs> you know, 25 points, 13 rebounds. He, he shot two from six from, from beyond the arc. But the issue was Trey, is Trey Scott took six three-point shots. Well, Trey Scott finally played the game that you thought he was. Uh, Trey play Scott year. played the game <laughs> the way you talk about Trey Scott. Right. Trey Scott had what was basically his best offensive performance of his career. 25 points, 13 rebounds, 10 of 17 from the field, two of six from three. A great all around game. If I told you that stat line heading into this game, we think we win by 15 to 20 points. Yeah. Well, I honestly I don't know what's said in UConn's locker room, but I, I would have to imagine it with something like this. Hey, if Trey Scott has the ball from beyond the arc, don't guard him. They're, they're saying let him shoot. You know, that's a shot I think they're willing to give up. If you notice, Trey Scott, almost every single three-pointer he did take was not contested. They were wide open, but no other player was seeming to have the ability to get as wide open in that position as he was. But hats off to him. He still had a great game, so I'm not I'm not going to knock him too much because he did, he did knock down two of those six three-pointers that sh- – Probably should have been uh, three of seven, but the the one that they they waved off as a two in the first half. Well, Trace but. found Trace found a way of being much more comfortable in the offense of late. I feel like there's less it, early in the season. It just seemed like he didn't really know what his role in the offense was. He seems to understand now. When I'm open, I can I can pop in the, the occasional three point shot, clean up on the offensive glass, follow up jams. But the best thing I'm seeing. Off ball, he's making some exceptional cuts to the rim, and he's being found by Jaron Cumberland, Chris Vote for easy dunks. I mean, he's he's he seems to grasp now exactly what he's supposed to be doing in the offense John Brandon wants to play. Yeah, it's 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 been fun to watch him, and like you said, this is the game that that I've been talking about. You want to see from him, and it's one of the very rare games that we lose when he's when he's when he's hitting double doubles. Uh, I did but notice. Now moving. Well, I want to make one, mention of one thing, Hummer. It's a little bit off script here. Um, John Brandon did something interesting this game that we've alluded to in the past. He really tightened up the rotation today. Trey Scott, 43 minutes. Chris Vogt, 41 minutes. Jaron Cumberland, 42 minutes. Keith Williams, 35 minutes. Obviously, overtime inflated some of these numbers, but I look at the bench numbers. Javen played 27 minutes. Otherwise, Mamadou, Harvey, McNeil, they played a total of 17 minutes combined. He rolled with his starters, with the guys he trusts. Um, and I think overall, that's a good strategy. Those players are significantly better right now than those other three guys I mentioned. But it could impact things like energy and, and uh, the defensive end down the stretch. I think if we were to, I think if you were asking John Brandon if that was intentional, I actually think his answer would have been no. I think one of the reasons we saw that happen was because Mamadou came into the game and just wasn't effective. He was, Bingo. you know, he just 
sometimes he sometimes he comes out and great you know he can be awesome but there's other times he can come out and he seems a little overexcited or, or a little too wanting to to play outside his game i thought or, exactly hummer i thought that's exactly what happened to mamadou diara today it felt like he came off that Wichita State game in which he was extremely effective, right? There was tons of Mamadou Diara praise, including this podcast. It felt like Mamadou drank a little bit of the Kool-Aid because when Mamadou comes out in the game and is trying off the dribble, drives to the basket, you're doing too much. Let's, let's dial it back, play the role. Pick and pop threes are one thing, but going off the bounce like you're Jaron Cumberland, that's another. Yeah, and... And, and there were some other things in his game, too. He came in, and I think as soon as he came in, he also had a, a very, was for lack of a better word, a very just not unnecessary foul. You know, just he, he made a lot of mistakes early on in his time, and that's why you only saw him for a limited time in the second half, too, because they are trying to get guys breaks. At some point, Chris Vogt, he looked gassed. Right. I think if, if you give John Brandon some truth serum, would you, in hindsight, maybe it's not even truth serum, I would like to know. In hindsight, should you have played Zach Harvey, Chris McNeil, and Mamadou Diara more minutes than you did, um, given that all three of them tend to be great sparks for defense off the bench? We struggled at times to defend Connecticut, and maybe if you find them a few more minutes, you're doing your starters a, a good service by getting them some extra rest, but you're also giving the team a spark by putting in plus defenders. Yeah, and I also think, too, you know, once again, not to put words into John Brand's mouth, but he played most of this game in the bonus. In the first half and the second half, he's really starting to think, okay, well, we're we're going offense, defense, offense, defense, offense, defense. And we're, he was doing a lot of subbing in and out of, of that too, even though these guys weren't getting a lot of minutes. When he was subbing them in, he was subbing them right back out. I saw at one point, like, Mamadou literally came in, went back out, came back in. <laughs> it was all within, like, three minutes, so... I mean, yeah, that, but that's a very telling stat because if you go back to the Wichita game, the minutes were very well distributed. You know, Zach Harvey's still seeing his limited, you know, five minutes, so he actually saw just about the same he saw in Wichita. But you had Javen Cumberland did what he did, but Mamadou had 20 minutes. Chris McNeil had 11 minutes. So you definitely see him backing off on some of those. So, hey, we talked about this earlier. This team lacks depth. Like it really does lack depth. We're yeah, we're For down instance, down to ten scholarship players. We're down to ten scholarship players, and and I'm not gonna lie, I about had a heart attack watching this game because for a a, a, a hot second, I thought that Chris Vogt had torn his ACL or something when <laughs> when Josh Carlton pulled a WWE style takedown of Chris Vogt off of what, what should have been, in my opinion, a flagrant two. I think there was, you know, I, a lot of people I, I saw where we were going off on the referees. I actually do not think the refs were that terrible throughout the game, except for there's literally one egregious call, which I think that one was it. I think Carlton should have been flagged two for that because, one, he did not need the fall. And not only did he fall, he rotated and took Chris down on over over top of him. And that's just a very dangerous play, and I don't, there's no reason for that, and there's no reason why he should have been left in the ballgame because he also came up with a smile of, like, I meant to do that. Yeah, that was that was clearly a dirty play. Flagger one, flagrant two, I think it is. There's room for debate. I'm not surprised by the decision they made. But if you are coming up smiling after putting a guy on the ground with a clearly illegal, dirty play, yeah, maybe we should give the, the two a little bit more consideration. One thing I want to mention about UConn, Hummer, 
and it ju- it's been driving me mad now for years since he came to the program for them. But Danny Hurley is corny. <laughs> Just corny. <laughs> the amount of performance. He's so, he's so performative on the sidelines in a way that's very look at me. He's The stuff he does is so extra that you can tell it's it's a way to get the cameras on him. Show me a few extra times. Let me make sure my wife is is able to wave to me from back home. And it's how it, you know it's it's also allowed him to get that John Rothstein nickname as well. You're corny. Stop. Chill out on the sidelines a little bit, Danny Hurley. Well, I heard some other people too talking about how he was he pushes the boundary of what is a technical foul from for a coach and what is not. At one point, I saw him like racing across the court after a timeout. The to get into basically a ref's face on the other side of the court. And it's like, what are you doing, dude? Get uh, back to your sideline. No coach who acts like that on the sideline is going to be a big-time winner. Period. I 100% agree. Period. All right, so we're starting to move in. We're past halftime. Well, let's jump gonna, to it, Hubbard. I think we've really hit I think we've hit the nail on the head on what the Bearcats did or failed to do in this game that really prevented us from getting the win. But you brought up an interesting point that I think warrants a couple minutes of discussion here. Jaron Cumberland clearly did not have it going today from the field. Finished one of 11, struggled to get open, struggled to finish like we've grown accustomed to. And your thought was, down the stretch, rather than having the ball in Jaron Cumberland's hands, you would have liked to see the ball in another player's hands. So, all right, looking back in the second half, and Brandon is clear, I think Brandon was clearly seeing Jaron struggling. We actually saw Jaron take a step back from the point guard role for a good five minutes, and clearly that also was not working. So, you know, maybe my, my theory is flawed here, but at the end of the game, just with the amount of struggles he was having, the turnover issues, and really the second half, I don't think he was creating a lot. Um, I would have liked to see someone with the last, this, I'm going to the, the last 27 seconds, the full the full Monty where we had a full offensive possession. I would have liked to not seen a, a Jaron ISO play being called there. I would have liked to see maybe you know, actually you had time to run the offense, run the offense, get the guys moving, maybe try to get something down low to a Chris vote or a Trey Scott cutting for an easy bucket. But I did not like the Jaron dribble into the paint and try to draw a foul trips, falls, loses the ball. Right. That play is not a good play. But we just beat Wichita State two days ago. On a night where he's normally he's on fire. Normally, 99% of the time, I wanted to go that. He's the conference but, player, the reigning conference player of the year. He's on the way to going back to back. And you think, and I think you're hedging right now, buddy. I'm calling you out. I think you're hedging. I think you said earlier you wanted to see the ball in someone else's hands, period. Not Jaron Cumberland. Keith Williams. I wanted to see the ball in Keith Williams' hands to take that last for the attempted last shot. I would have. I'm not going to hedge it. I'll come out there and say it. I wanted to see Keith Williams have the ball for that shot. But I don't want to see him running that ISO play. I'll say this. The possession before that, I'm pretty sure the ball ended up in Keith Williams' hands where he was forced to create and and be the offense. The, 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 The set offense had broken down. Keith Williams ended up dribbling to the corner for a fadeaway two-point jump shot that came up well short and I, I think failed to draw iron. Now, I love Keith Williams. I think he is one of the... He's easily one of the most 
two to three important pieces on this team in terms of our success. Defensively, great upside. Offensively, he fills tons of roles. Offensive rebounding from the guard position. Uh, he runs the court incredibly well. We saw that with Jaron Cumberland, a few more of those connections where UConn might score and all of a sudden we're getting a layup before they even realize what's happening. However, I do not find one of Keith Williams' strengths at this point to be primary ball handler, run the offense, either create a shot for another player or create your own shot. I do not see Keith Williams thriving from that role. And from my perspective, as long as Jaron Cumberland is on this team, the ball runs through him. That's who we give the ball to. That's where the offense starts. That's why John Brandon made him the point guard to begin with. Even if he's not scoring 10 assists, they speak for themselves. Yep. Well, what I'll say, what I'll go back to saying about this then, you know, there was a very controversial article posted, and I don't think we've actually commented on this yet. We've been very uh, uh, avoiding of the topic. Um, it was Paul or, Doherty basically writing that. Or we forgot it. <laughs> or we forgot it. Either way, we're going to address it head on here. Go ahead. We're, we're going at this with a freight train. All right. Pun intended. He, the, the particular author of this article said that Jaron Cumberland is the most important player for the Bearcats and basically compared him to Kenya Martin's contribution on the team. And while I, I don't think that's entirely fair, I think this game also highlights a fact that normally we have four players that are scoring double digits. We were right below that mark today with three. Jaron Cumberland was is an important piece to this team who also at, needs to be able to score the basketball at times. He just he was doing everything in his game except for that piece that he's he's also been accustomed to. And if he's not showing up, it's going to be very hard to win games if he's not scoring 12, 13, 14 points on the low side. Obviously, we all want to see him scoring 20 points on the high side. That's a great game. But on the low side, on what would be a mediocre night for him, you know, when he's not going to score that. So is he... Is he in your mind? What do you, what what are we thinking here? So What's the our consensus? yeah, the article was basically saying he is the most important Bearcat to his team since Kenyon Martin, and I was surprised that there was as much backlash to that article. It was really more of just a, an opinion blog. It wasn't very long. It was saying that Jaron Cumberland's the most important Bearcat to his team since Kenyon Martin. Now, there's some other names that should be mentioned. Steve Logan comes to mind, hashtag retire22. I would say his senior year that got that got a one seed for the Bearcats, I would say he was as important as any Bearcat in the history of the program to his team. He outscored a team by himself. Another guy that I saw mentioned was, uh, was Deontay Vaughn. Now, I get that. Deontay Vaughn was incredibly important to a team that lost a lot of games, right? I yep. think that the upside on that team was capped. So in terms of Deontay not being on the team, maybe you go from 11 wins to four wins. Two. <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. there's only so far you can go down at that point. Another, you know, some other names, Sean Kilpatrick, Gary Clark. I don't think, I think Jaron Cumberland's made a strong case, and I think it's a well-thought-out piece, given the fact that Jaron Cumberland has the entire offense run through him at this point. He makes so many decisions for this team in terms of creation for others. He sets up Chris Vogt, Trey Scott, Keith Williams, 
for layups. It's a layup line out there. He gets rebounds or the ball is handed to him quickly after a rebound and pushes the pace like no other Bearcat in recent memory. He's immensely important, and I think it's a well-founded article. Now, he doesn't touch the importance of Kenyon Martin to the 99-2000 team. When you look at the fact that he took us from clear favorite to win the NCAA title to losing in the second round to Tulsa to when you the game he gets hurt, losing to a St. Louis team where the game before, senior night, we beat them by more than 40. Kenyon Martin's importance to that team emotionally from a game standpoint in terms of, in terms of his work ethic, in terms of coming in game one senior season and saying, I'm putting the team on my back and I'm dominating. Nobody comes close. But Jaron Cumberland, great all-time Bearcat, incredibly important to this team, and we saw it today. He's he runs the show and we go as we go as he goes. That's that's what I was gonna say, because let's let's play and I think this is gonna be a great segment because I think we're it seems like we're we'll talk. Uh before we move on, I'll mention it. All right, yes, Jaron Cumberland probably should have been fouled at the end of the game. More than likely, that, sh- that that was a basketball foul. It happened. We're moving on. Oh, I've been talked out of that. I actually, looking yeah. at the clock, I thought that the time had expired, and and it's probably a good yeah. non-call. It w- in the moment, I felt the same way. It looked like a foul. Uh, it seems like there's too much of a chance that the clock had expired. It would have been a huge bailout call. Like If that happened to okay. the Bearcats, I would have been furious. Yep. All right, so now we got it. It's in the bed. UConn's in the bed. We're on the Memphis, but... Now let's let's finish up this this conversation here with Jaron because look, let's let's because this can be a great segue. We go, we win these, we we crush the rest of the remaining seven games, we get into the tournament. Jaron Cumberland, we go to the finals of the AAC tournament. All of a sudden, we're now looking like instead of a 12 seed, we're looking like a solid eight because we're about to win this tournament and we're just about to run through some people, right? Jaron Cumberland gets hurt in the finals of that game. We probably go from back from being at that eight seed all the way back down to the 12 seed all because he's simply not on the team. I think he has the ability to get to being that person. No, not Kenyon Martin-esque or, you know, not, not true, but I think he's, he's close enough that today is a good example. He played overall what is an okay game. He just wasn't there on the offensive side in terms of his own shot making ability. And it really hurt. It's, yeah. I'm not going to it's a team effort, but hey, he if he if he has a couple of those buckets go the other way, we're not talking about a loss today, we're talking about a win. Hey, Humber, with everything else that he was able to do. To me, this looks like a dip. I'm buying if people are actually going to sell. He's a dominant gonna, player. He's going to he's going to continue dominating the the conference play. He had a bad shooting night coming off a pretty short rest, off an ankle injury against w- Wichita State. Yeah, Unfortunately, we're, we're you can't combine that kind of shooting performance with giving up 18 offensive rebounds. And with UConn shooting well beyond their normal three-point shot. Now, I'm going to play my own devil advocate because Jaron Cumberland also only scored eight points. And we only lost by one. We were in the position to win the game without Jaron being a scoring threat. Because Jaron can do so much more than just score the ball. And that's what separates him from Sean Kilpatrick. That's what separates him from Deontay Vaughn. Deontay Vaughn was a good creator, too. He was definitely not on the level of Jaron Cumberland. So we can move on, Hummer. The Bearcats have a chance to bounce back this week on February 13th. Memphis comes to town. An opportunity for revenge for the travesty that was the officiating and a lackluster performance in some respects against Memphis 
back in January, which lead, led, led me to think, Hummer, the Bearcats have started this six-game stretch, the, the important season-deciding six games uh, where we are currently sitting at 4-1. and one. Memphis comes to town. We have an opportunity to finish that stretch 5-1. and one. Exactly what we were calling for as we head into that stretch. Correct? Feeling Correct. good. We now have seven games remaining. And I thought it would be fun. Let's look at these seven games and let's talk about, let's rank them in order of importance as the season goes on. Obviously, every single game is important at this point. But let's nitpick and let's put these, let's rank these games in order of most important to least important. What's number one? I think you hit it, man. We're playing them next. You got to win the next one. You got to come off this 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 road loss and come and defend your home court. You gotta you gotta put the beat down to Memphis. They're a quality opponent. They're a quality opponent at home. It's a great a great chance to to add to it. But you need to start off this. You need to one close out that six game stretch. Move on to the last six games of the season. You got to take down Memphis on your home court. Agreed. We've already dropped a game to them once. They're competing for uh, for a spot in the tournament just the same way we are. They're currently number sixty in the net rankings, and since and they're in it, they're tail spinning. Look, frankly, like they're nose diving in the standings. They just dropped a home game, I think, to USF. We cannot lose to Memphis at home. I one hundred percent agree. Memphis at home Thursday is the most important game remaining on our schedule. The next that mo- being said, that, that being said though. My confidence level in beating Memphis at home has never been higher. I don't know why, but I just feel like we are just going to match. We match up against them very well, and I think we sh- we sh- should have had that game on the road against them. We could have. We just didn't. We also didn't play well. But yeah, let's move on. What's the, yeah? The the game. The next most important game, and this is going to sound counterintuitive. At East Carolina is the second most important game remaining on the schedule. And that comes down to the fact that that team has a net ranking of 209 as of now. You cannot lose to that team because if you lose to that team, we're not talking about what games do we need to win in order to sneak in the tournament at that point. No, our conversation shifts from that to we need to win. win We need to win the conference tournament to get in the tournament at that point. So, East Carolina, second most important game remaining on the schedule. Obviously, we should win that game. I'm not very nervous about it, but I'm kind of nervous about it because of you, you just never know. It's because it's a road game, it's kind of a trap game. They it's, beat us last year at their place. Anything can happen. So I like our ranking there. What's number three? Once, Well, if you see where the trend's going, if you think it's counterintuitive, the next one is another team that we absolutely cannot afford to lose to. If we lose to them, once again, we are no longer having an at-large bid discussion. We are talking about you have to win the tournament to get in, University of Central Florida. I agree. Net ranking right now of 125. Central Florida's a home game. I have a very low worry factor of this game. Home game. We're a better team. We should put them away. No, ta- no taco fall. No nightmares than the game before because of the 7-5 monster who's going to dominate the paint. Let's put away UCF at home, and we'll, and we'll be fine. Next most important game, an away game, and we're actually finally going out of whack on the schedule at South Florida. 
this is a team that's that's been frisky of late. And coming into the season, I think people had higher expectations for what they could do in conference play. They had a tough injury before the season. They just upset Memphis on their home court. South Florida, 117 in net rankings. How do you feel about that game? Once again, I'm feeling good because we should win. If we lose, it's a major it's a major screw up. And once again, we're back in that same spot with the first two. We are now talking about we have to win the tournament. At large goes out the window. Can't afford to lose those three games. Exactly. These are important, right? UCF, South Florida, ECU. These are simply games we cannot drop. The next most important game, Wichita State at home, net ranking 43. We just got done beating them on their home court for, I think, the second or third consecutive time. They're in a tails. They're in a complete tailspin. They just went to Houston and got bombed by over 30 points. Greg Marshall's talking after the game about, you know, basically being disconnected with the players. He's never been in a situation like this in his career. How how they bounce back from that, who knows? But they may not even they may play their way out of the tournament, and which is good for the Bearcats. But it makes it that much more important that we do not lose to them on on our home court. So after Wichita, we have Houston at Houston. This is a game, and like you said, these rankings sound counterintuitive, but from an actual, so assuming we get to Houston and we have won the games that are important, Houston now becomes a resume building win because you're going to go on the road. They're going to be a quadrant one team. And that's where you get to put a stamp on the resume that says, hey, I'm not a 12 seed. I'm a 10 seed. I'm a 9 seed. I'm maybe an 8 seed. That's where you can go in and get a quality a quality win on the road that just says, hey, we're the Bearcats and we're here, we're here to play. I agree with you. If we take care of business on these games that we're supposed to win, Houston's importance is less so for getting in the tournament. And I think because all of this is being discussed in terms of avoiding the bubble, getting in the tournament, having a chance at March at, at making a run. Because I think we I'm I'm excited about the, the style of play, the fact we can win with defense, we can win with offense. We have Jaron Cumberland. You feel good about our tournament chances. We gotta get in the tournament though, right? You gotta get in the tournament to start. And so at Houston feels less important from that standpoint because there's plenty of opportunities with these other six games that I think that gets the job done but it gives us that opportunity to, to elevate in terms of seeding. Now, whether we want to be a 9 versus 11, I probably would actually lean 11 because college basketball is so just messy and equal this year. There's not a lot of great teams, but that's for another day. Our final well, we game... Also play, we as Bearcats play better, I'm learning, as the underdog. Yeah, it, we don't do well with expectations, historically speaking, and we'll, we'll leave it at that. Our final... Our final game in terms of most important games remaining. We threw Temple on there at home because, look, it's going to be senior night. We're going to beat their brains, and it's still an important game, but are you worried? Well, also, we know pretty much where we're going to stand by the time we get to Temple. Right. We know what we're going to have to do. Like, Temple, by the time we get to Temple, we're going to know if we've taken care of these four most, the first four most important games. We're going to know if we got to Wichita and took care of business. And basically, we're going to know what happened in Houston. So if Temple, in my mind, loses importance because it's just the last game of the season, it's a, it's, 
It's a home game. It's senior night. We're, it's a game you're expected to take care of business. The crowd is going to be absolutely insane. We're going to be there. Hummer and Coomer in the witnessed. house for this game. Correct. And I've never witnessed a loss at Fifth Third Arena. And I don't plan on this one being my, well, new Fifth Third Arena. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm glad you made mention of it. We're actually both going to be at that game. We're attending in person, and there will be Cincy slang and swag to be found at this game. More to come on that. So just to recap, our order of importance from most important to least important, even though all seven games are absolutely important, Memphis at home at East Carolina, UCF at home at South Florida, Wichita State at home at Houston, Temple at home, but let's just win them all. How about we win them all? We don't have to sweat. We're, we know we're getting in the tournament, and we all rest easy. That's, that's the perfect world. Let's win them all. Let's get a first-round bye in our own tournament. Let's go and win the tournament. I need another shirt. I need another champion's shirt. I want to win the conference again. So Me too. Let's win the conference tournament. Let's go back to back to back. At this point, Hummer... Uh, real quick, before we pivot to Luke Fickle in football, how many games do you think we can actually afford to lose? One. Okay. I actually think we could Maybe lose two. two games and still get in the tournament. But if we lose two, A, we probably have to do some damage in the conference tournament. B, I mean, we're just we're the epitome of a bubble team at that point, and we have absolutely no idea whether we're going to make it. And if we do... We're probably playing on Tuesday night in Dayton. Well, if we lose two, honestly, one of them would have to be Houston on the road because that's the one that does the least damage in terms of being a bubble team because it's a road a road game. Uh, if we lose two, it cannot be ECU, UCF, South Florida, or Temple. So it could only be Memphis or Wichita. Yeah, and I, I just think, I, honestly, the more I look at it, all of those games, if, it, if it's not at Houston... All of those games feel too damaging to lose. So maybe maybe it is one. Time will tell. We have It makes it interesting, right? You're not going to win every game. The fact we lost this game against Connecticut, it just makes everything that more, much more interesting. I do believe the Bearcats have, the, have the, the game to get this done and make March Madness. All right. I've kind of been dreading to, wanting to talk about this. Uh, and the reason why I wanted, I'm dreading talking about the Michigan State Dan Antonio retirement announcement on Tuesday, Luke Fickle being very fickle in his decision of whether he wants to stay or wants to go is just uh, because I don't necessarily think my take on it is very popular or will be very popular amongst the diehards UC football fans that have basically has existed since 2007. Uh, and, and that is, look, if Fickle leaves, do I want him to stay? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I would love to see Fickle stay, but I'm going to put my real, I said this, I think I've said this before in a previous podcast, my real hat on, like it's Michigan state. It's one of those jobs that yes, you probably look to leave Cincinnati for, uh, we are a stepping stone program. Our conference limits us in the abilities of a coaches upside with this team. Even if next year Fickle stays, I'll do the hypothetical Fickle stays university of Cincinnati goes undefeated. Where are we at? We're still talking about a New Year's Six Bowl. We're probably not talking about uh, a, a bid to the NCAA or the national championship or the playoffs. The college football and more than playoffs, likely, right. college football playoffs. And that's simply because 
we don't play anybody in conference that's going to be top 10 loaded teams to get us that recognition. We're not are in our out-of-conference schedule. God forbid one year it does have that in there. We have to have all the stars line up to be able to beat in a number five Ohio State in our non-conference schedule, go undefeated, and then be, have a chance to talk for it. Just all the stars have to line up for a program like Cincinnati to do that. Where basketball, that's not the case. It seems like most Bearcat fans are in agreement that Luke Fickle is going to leave, whether it's now for Michigan State or next year for a different job. Almost everybody, it seems like the consensus is Luke Fickle's not here for the long run. Now, Luke Fickle just brought in the highest rated recruiting class in the history of the Cincinnati Bearcats football program. I think it's top 40. And it's it's highlighted by Evan Prater from Wyoming High School. It's an incredibly exciting class loaded with talent. And it has people, you know, geared up to see what we're going to actually do. Nobody is doubting the fact that if Luke Fickle keeps succeeding, he's going to leave. So I'm not sure why it wouldn't happen right now. My my opinion on these football situations with regard to Big Ten, uh, Big Ten or or Big Twelve teams pursuing your the Bearcats coach, if they want him, they're going to get him. The resources they have at their disposal in terms of what they can offer financially being able to compete for college football playoff appearances, it exceeds what the Bearcats can offer at our program. It doesn't make our program less fun. It's obviously fun to cheer on the Cincinnati Bearcats football program. It's one of the highest achieving, uh, you know, non-Power 5 schools in the country. It's been incredible what you can achieve. We actually have to embrace the fact you can come here as an up-and-coming coach, make your name, and use it as leverage for a higher-ranking job. Because if we keep doing that, and if we leverage that reputation, we're going to continue succeeding. Because people know you can recruit talent to this program, you can win at this program, and you can achieve almost the highest of heights at UC. You just can't get to the playoff. That's not so bad. It's not bad, and and on top of that too, like I'm not gonna say every Power Five job out there is immediately better than Cincinnati. Like Vanderbilt comes knocking, and you're like, okay, it's Vanderbilt. That's that's not the same as Tennessee or Alabama or Auburn. You know, there's different levels of schools within inside their own conferences of what's good or not. You know, people kept referencing, well, he he didn't want to interview at Louisville, he didn't want to interview at West Virginia. Sorry, they're not the same. They're, they're not the same as some of the big boys in their conferences, the Oklahomas, the Texas, uh, the Clemson, the Florida State, Floridas. It's just it's a lot different, and Cincinnati is at the top of the pecking order for the non-Power Fives. One day, if we get into a Power Five, it's a whole different story. I do think we can become a destination school because we already have that in basketball. And people well, Mick Cronin left for UCLA. I'm a, I'm still fully convinced that we let Mick Cronin go. It was a mutual parting, and the way to do it was to say, we're not going to offer you the contract. It's an easy way to say, you're not fired. You're not being forced to resign. It's go, try your hand somewhere else. I disagree was with a, you. I disagree with you on that front. I understand exactly what you're saying. So continue with your point. I do think that there are a few jobs in basketball that you could see a Bearcat coach leave. Um, 
UCLA is one of them. North Carolina is one of them. Duke is one of them. That's, well, that's what I'm getting few. into. Right. There's definitely a few. But at the same time, the pecking order of where Cincinnati sits in that list of all-time elite programs, it's a top 15 program all time. We have resources that get piled into our basketball program to make it in a, in a, a place where you can compete at an elite level. We're not there. The difference between us and say a Michigan State basketball department isn't as great as the resources between a University of Cincinnati and a University of Michigan football program. The resources it takes to run those two programs are vastly different too, with the amount of players that you have, the amount of scholarships that you're offering, the amount of coaches on the coaching staff that you have to pay, just everything that you're offering. It's just a way more expensive sport to run. In basketball, though, we have that pedigree. I. There's not a lot of schools I think you're going to leave Cincinnati for, you know, UNLV. I actually had to laugh. I laughed. I remember when Mick Cronin was going for that job, and I'm like, okay, you want to leave to go to UNLV. That's great. Right. Like, and the thing is, okay. <laughs> our, our conference affiliation in basketball is not going to hold you back from being one of the best teams in the country. John, Brand, John Brandon has already proved you can recruit great talent to a university, and he's done that in short order. Tari Eason from Seattle, Washington, is coming to the University of Cincinnati next year. He's a top 75 player in the country, and his upside is through the roof. That's an NBA talent that that kid is, right? Conference affiliation does not hold you back in the same way that it does football. Now, John Cunningham, the new athletic director, I have been perplexed by the lack of just presence in the community in public in terms of this Luke Fickle situation. And I do fully expect, when I say a school like Michigan State, if they want Fickle, they can get Fickle, I believe that. But I don't think that they should be doing it without a great effort from the University of Cincinnati. And if there's hesitation or apprehension from Cunningham to do everything in his power to try and keep Fickle, I think that's a grave mistake. He's sending a terrible message. You shouldn't just be letting him walk out the door. We should be doing everything in our power to try and retain him. It's unclear to me if that's happening. Uh, and I don't want to speculate, you know, what what's going on behind the scenes too much. But we've also talked about this before: the financial resources. That's different. You know, the fact that the majority of coaching salaries are are picked up by boosters and not the actual tab of the university. You know. The go and say, oh, UC's being cheap or UC's doing this or Cincinnati needs to pay more. It's not that easy to say, okay, we're going to give you an extra – we're going to take your salary from – and I used to have the numbers in front of me. I think I actually just threw the paper away the last time we went over this. But to say I'm going to raise your salary, coaching salary by you know for all your pool by $3 million a year over five years, that's $15 million. You know th That kind of money just isn't necessarily laying around, especially when the we, we keep – when we get to college athletics, we see it's glamorous and the TV contracts and all that stuff. We sometimes forget that the main mission of the university is not basketball. It's a research institution. It's there for, for students. It's there for it's a learning institution. Basketball and these sporting programs were meant as a way to bring in income, revenue, and, and expand the footprint of the university. So it's not as easy to just say, oh, just pay him more. Pay him $3 million more. Hey, Michigan State has that because they have a billion-dollar contract or whatever, and they're getting 23 – you know, what was it? I think Alabama got paid 40-something million dollars each SEC school from their TV contract this year. <laughs> We're not getting that, guys. We're not. It sucks, 
but we're not. Now, if Fickle ends up leaving and taking the Michigan State job, I've seen one name pop up pretty consistently. Marcus Freeman, the defensive coordinator for the Bearcats. He's extremely close with Luke Fickle. You know, I believe they're 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 their children's each other's children's godfathers. Um, great guy by all accounts. Extremely young, thirty four years old. Uh, this is his first. You know, this is the biggest position he's ever held right now as defensive coordinator. I believe he was pursued by the Tennessee Titans to be a linebacker coach. Obviously, an up and coming coach, but he's never been in that head coach role. How do you feel about seeing him being offered the head coach position? in the event Luke Fickle decides to head to Michigan State? I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm too upset by it. One, I think we'd be able to get him because taking a head coaching job at Cincinnati is probably a little more prestigious than just being a defensive coordinator at a Big Ten school. Um, you know, I think, and I'm not really too too worried about that sense because he has a, a familiarity with the way things have been being done. So it's not like he's going to be coming in and having no idea He's also going to have familiarity with the recruits that are coming in, the players that are already here. So it seems like it could be a seamless transition. And frankly, I'm just not really in knowing who's available at this point because that, once again, this, the, the, the weird part about this is, is it happened on the day before National Signing Day. Yes. The timing so is bad. The time, Who are right. we going to get to want to take over our program in that situation where they have not been able to go and recruit to the Cincinnati name where a guy like Freeman has been out there. He gives into a trans a seamless transition into the next recruiting cycle. He's not going to be a step behind like the next coach coming in like fickle. Honestly, I think this is one of the worst situations he could actually be walking himself into by going to Michigan state simply because it's after national signing day. Yeah. I think Freeman would be the best option in terms of, synergy between coaching staffs right and trying to retain as much of this well-regarded recruiting class as possible that said no head coaching experience it's just it's it's late in the game I don't know I don't know what it necessarily means for the Bearcats obviously we're on pins and needles we had to talk about it I don't think that the Bearcat fan base needs to be needs to take a dark turn toward Luke Fickle in this situation no matter what outcome He's been incredibly successful the last two years. He's restored the name of the Cincinnati Bearcat football program after the abomination that was Tommy Tuberville. Oh, Good Tommy Tuberville. God, he was terrible. Thank goodness he's no longer at our university or any university for that matter. Just an awful coach, bad person, good riddance to him. And, and we're in better hands now. We're in a better state now because of what Luke Fickle has done for this program. So nothing but praise for him. Hopefully he, he decides to remain a Cincinnati Bearcat because I am excited for what the team could do next season. Uh, we can build on what was a great season in 18-19. In uh, sorry, 19-20, I guess. Uh, we can build on a great 2019 into 2020. Evan Prater's on board. We've got tons of talent. We'll see what happens, buddy. Yeah, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm just talking, you know, <laughs> dropping cow dung on the football program look they've had a ton of success and arguably more success than the basketball team has over the last 10 years you know they went to two straight two straight bcs bowls you know they're, they're they're being very successful doing great things i just don't think it's something where where we need to be afraid or or have this inferiority complex it's just you know live in the moment live with what we have be happy with what we have 
And then hopefully someday in the future, our situation improves where we are a school that has the resources and has the ability to pay a coach and keep a coach to stay and a coach wants to stay here. Uh, well said. Well said. Cause I don't, I definitely didn't want to make it come across like we're crapping all over the football program. It's the exact opposite. It's actually just embracing the reality of what our program is for, it's for the better. It's a fun it's, program. It's great. It's been, yeah, it's been fun since we've been in college, right? Since we, since that 2006 year getting Brian Kelly on board, uh, you know, Mark D'Antonio had some good success too, but really Brian Kelly, stimulated this program into life. And aside from that aberration with Tuberville, it's been a a tremendous success. So uh, here's to many more years of that. I had season tickets to the football team uh, in like from starting, I think it was in like 2003. You could count how many people were in the stands. Like you can just go one, two, three, four, you know, it's so funny when I when I hear people talk about it, and, I'm, and I do ask like, okay, where were you in '02? Where were you in '03? You know, look, we didn't really. I, I remember the first time going to a game and being like, holy hell, there are so many people here, and like, it was so exciting because it was something new. You didn't know that UC football could draw this kind of crowds. So you see, put it this way: before Brian Kelly, uh, Saint Xavier Elder held the record for the largest attendance figure at Nippert Stadium wasn't a UC game it was a high school football game held the largest attendance figures that says something about where it was and where it's came and we should embrace it and have fun with it and let's not be like UCF and have two seasons where all of a sudden we think we're gods and deserve to be in a larger conference here we had sustained success we deserve to be in a larger conference, not because of recent success, total program success over our, ent- our entire lives as a university. How far we've come, sir. Hummer, I want to make mention uh, as we transition here into our dedication for today's episode. This week, we got a five-star review on iTunes. We've had a Did few, we? but I actually want to make sure we make mention of this one in particular. This review came in from Cats by 69. Nice. Subject. Perfect. Five stars. You guys a awesome. You guys a awesome. Thank you, Cats by 69. Much appreciated. Keep the five-star reviews coming. Find us on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast. Hit us with a five-star review. We're also on Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Cincy Slangin, and you can email us cincyslangin at gmail.com. Look, play some Where's Waldo at the Temple game. Hummer and I are going to be there. We're going to be there with some extra shirts. Who knows what else? We want to meet you. Come shake our hands. Come say hello. And uh, we really appreciate everyone's support of the podcast thus far. Hummer, we're going to dedicate the podcast now. Who is the Bearcat that we're going to dedicate this podcast episode to? So I don't want to take the credit for this because you did the dig deep in for this. You're, you did the deep dive. You pulled this one out of the memory bank. But I'll say the name, and I'll let you go through the dedication materials. But this one goes out to an NBA Jam legend, <laughs> Mr. Nick Van Exel, who, if I had to guess, when they were building that game, if you put Nick Van Exel into the corner, it was like 95% of the time that shot went in. 
Nick Van Exel had to be the dedication today. And I hope there's several people out there who know why. But in 1991, in the 91-92 season, Nick Van Exel and the Cincinnati Bearcats played Memphis four times, twice during the regular season, once in the conference championship, and once in the Elite Eight. Guess what? Bearcats went 4-0, including an 88-57 beatdown in the Elite Eight. In that game, Nick Van Exel went 4-5 from three-point range, dropped 22 points. An amazing player for the Bearcats. We only got him for two seasons, but he is easily one of the most exciting players to come through here. One of the smoothest, most incredible lefties in NBA history. You know, if you watched him in the NBA, he eventually joined the Dallas Mavericks early 2000s, played in a very important six-man role for them. Did not get the award, but made the playoffs that season and dropped 36 and 42 points, I believe, in back-to-back games in the first round that year. Just an awesome, exciting, smooth, left-handed player. Someone that's long overdue in terms of getting a dedication from this podcast. But given that it's the week of the Memphis game, he coached as an assistant coach for the Memphis Grizzlies up until 2019. Nick Van Exel, this podcast is for you. Cheers.